Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with author and scholar Brandon O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien has a PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's currently the Director of Content Development and Distribution for Redeemer City to City, where he coordinates, edits, and shepherds writing projects uh, with urban church planners all around the world. Brandon has served in pastoral ministry, worked in publishing, and taught for state and Christian colleges and universities, and he is the co-author of the book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. And we will talk about his book a bunch in this conversation. Uh, Dr. O'Brien's going to guide us through some of the ways that American Christian nationalist leaders will misread, misuse, and misapply scripture by failing to recognize their own cultural lenses and blinders. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Brandon O'Brien. Brandon, you wrote a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. What is that all about? How, how is it that we might be misreading scripture with our Western eyes? Yeah. So let me tell you a little about the way it came about. My co-author, Randy Richards, was a former professor of mine and a good friend and mentor. And he had had um, missionary experience in Indonesia. And he likes to tell a story about when he was meeting with some um, church leaders in Indonesia, and they were discussing a couple who had committed a grievous sin, and they were trying to figure out what to do about it. And they were very cautious about revealing, you know, secrets of people. So they're hesitant to tell them the details. But he finally asked, what did, what did they do? And he said, well, they married on the run. And he said, you mean eloped? And they're like, yeah, they, they ran off without their parents' blessing. They got married to each other. And Randy's instinct was to say, well, I don't think that's a grievous sin. And he tried to kind of temper their response a little bit. And they said, well, doesn't the Bible say that we should honor our fathers and mothers? And, you know, this is what their fathers and mothers wanted was them to marry somebody else. And Randy, it occurred to him, like, yeah, he had a PhD in, you know, in um, New Testament study of Paul in particular. And it would never have occurred to him that that passage would have that application. And so that got him thinking about how his growing up and being educated in North America affected how he intuitively read certain things and applied certain things when he read the Bible. And then he's encountering people who grew up in a different place, were formed in a different sort of place and had very different intuitions about what the Bible meant and how to apply it. So I didn't share that same uh, missionary experience, but I was at the time we wrote it working on a PhD in church history. And I kept running into historical figures who would say things like, you know, as any reasonable person would agree, you know, dot, dot, dot. And there's all this kind of framing of Christian opinion in terms of who's reasonable and who's unreasonable. And I found myself disagreeing a lot with people that I considered reasonable and I consider myself fairly reasonable. <laughs> and so I was trying to make sense. We're both Westerners, but they live in a different time. Maybe they live in America, but they lived here 200 years ago. And so that difference in sort of social context 
meant that when I read something, I immediately jumped to one conclusion. And when they read the very same Bible, they jumped to a different conclusion. And so my experience was sort of historical and Randy's was more like geographic, cross-cultural, but both of us were wrestling with the question, how is it that people who revere the Bible, believe that it's true, assume that it has something to say to our lives and go to the reading of it with the intention of just letting it speak for itself. How could we go there and get radically different kind of instinctive interpretations of what it meant? So that's kind of what prompted our writing and, and research. And the very short version of the story is we were trying to identify predictable patterns by which those of us who grew up in the West and the modern world in you know 21st century are culturally different from people who wrote the Bible who would have been you know it, at the earliest first century Roman occupied Jewish you know Greek background Christians and so we're just assuming that when they hear the Bible in the first century and we hear the Bible in the 21st century it, we are coming to it with the same goals but because of our cultural locations are in, instinctively sort of hearing very different things. And so the book, we try to kind of go systematically and say, here's these ways in which we're just different from that original audience and those authors. And that's the kind of beginning of accounting for why we get such different answers in the 21st century than they may have gotten in, say, the first century. What's an example of a question that maybe some of the original hearers of scripture would have been asking that's different than the questions that we're asking scripture to answer. Well, let me, let me start with a contemporary example and then I'll work my way back. So I work now with church planters all around the world and was struck sometime recently by the fact that a lot of our church planters from certain parts of Africa who grew up in Muslim background homes actually grew up in um, polygamous families. And so I think when we read in North America, a passage like uh, an overseer must be the husband of only one wife, we automatically assume that means an overseer can't be divorced. But some parts of the world may read that and think they can't have two wives at the same time. And so I think there's an example of just in my social world, because polygamy is not an option, the only way a person could have two wives is to have two in a row, not to have them two at a time. But there are some parts of the world where it's possible to have two at a time. And so then the question would be, which of us is m more nearly similar? Which of our situations is more similar to the first century situation? So which of us is kind of reading, you know, a little more similarly? I think one example if we go to the Bible itself, this isn't a direct answer to your question. It's not quite what question, but it's a, it's what assumptions. So this is a, not exactly an answer to your question about what questions why might we be asking that were different from the questions that the uh, first audience of scripture would be asking, but it's uh, maybe a way to talk about different assumptions. And so uh, a passage that I think illustrates this really well is first Corinthians chapter six, verses 19, and uh, yeah, and, and on. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When I was growing up, this passage was used 
pretty often to keep us from drinking alcohol and getting tattoos. So no graffiti on God's temple and don't put no poison in God's temple, right? Which are fine things. It's fine to not drink alcohol and fine to not get tattoos, but this isn't the text, right? Necessarily for making that point. What I find interesting is if you were to go, you could do this as an experiment, but you go to BibleGateway.com and pull up this verse in several English translations. One thing that you'll find is that the translations have a hard time agreeing on which nouns are singular and which nouns are plural. So the one I just read is, I believe, the NIV, and it says, do you not know that your bodies, plural, are temples, plural, of the Holy Spirit? Some translations will, not, will say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And it gets, or you know, each of your bodies is a temple. And it get, it's, it's kind of confusing on the what's singular and what's plural. In the Greek, the temple is singular and the bodies are plural, which means that your bodies together make up one temple for the Holy Spirit. But that's a concept that we have a hard time. Our language has a hard time doing that because the, the subjects don't agree. So we have like a linguistic problem, but also just conceptually as individualistic people in North America, we have a really hard time imagining how somehow together we would be jointly a body, a temple for the Holy Spirit. Because the implication in here is that someone is committing a sexual sin. And when that individual commits sexual sin, it impacts the entire combined body of believers. So one person sleeping with a prostitute implicates the whole church and somehow connects Jesus to that sin. That's the scandal for Paul in this moment. But that only works if you have a collectivistic understanding of the body of Christ instead of an individualistic one. And so that's a place where it's reflected in our intuitive application is, oh, my body is a temple, therefore I should think about how I treat my body. Instead, the first reader would have said, your collective together make up one body. So how you treat that thing, that collection of you is really the most important thing. And that is, that would be an intuitive read for them. And our read about individualizing it would be intuitive for us. And so that's a, a good example of kind of how our cultural situation pushes us in one direction or another. So your book is specifically looking at Western eyes, which is America, Europe, there's also Christian nationalist eyes hmm. and folks who are approaching the scriptures, having heard many times, the Bible says, clearly the Bible says uh, that we should have firearms or that we should make America a Christian state, yeah. a Christian government, or the Bible's clear that we should have school choice or whatever the issue is. Uh, many of us have been in, gatherings, a, a meal, an office meeting, a church small group, and somebody just starts in on this talk track of the scripture is clear, and then they throw a verse out there like, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's why we've got to promote gun ownership at the church because we can't love our neighbor if we can't protect them from bad guys. Mm. So let's do, pastor, let's do a gun rally. How might you respond to that use of scripture? Mm. 
Yeah. So I think you, you introduced that well, and I, I want to touch on something you said there at the very beginning of that question, which is the book is making some general observations about Western culture and how it's different from non-Western culture and how like contemporary culture is different from ancient, you know, first century culture and before. I think you could do another book maybe we'll do this someday on like within North America, you have lots of different subcultures and those different subcultures have additional kind of layers and lenses that influence their perception. All of us do. So it's not that I have no, no uh, frames or lenses and you do, it's that all of us do. And, you know, sometimes our frustration is that I'm not seeing what someone in another part of the world is seeing, but more often it's on Facebook or at church. Two of us are looking at the same words and coming to very different conclusions. How do you make sense of that? If we're both Westerners, et cetera, well, it's the same rules apply that the communities that we're part of and the, the experiences that we have and the influences that shape our vision of the world will affect us down to the subculture level or the kind of community level. So it's a very similar thing happening there as well. So I think that this is a really hard question to answer because it takes a little bit of time. Um, I think sometimes, (laughs) you know, if it's in passing in the church lobby and we're getting a cup of coffee and somebody says that, you know, my tendency is to say, oh, God bless you. <laughs> Have a good week. <laughs> you know, classic avoidance. If it's somebody that I know well, and I know we're going to keep having this conversation, then obviously I would want to do more than that. But I think what would be helpful, uh, first of all, for for me as the person hearing comments that I have a hard time understanding, is to first understand that all of our interpretations are shaped by our sh- our social and cultural situation. That doesn't mean they're determined. It doesn't mean it's inevitable that we can't ever break them, but just means that my gut reactions are very much influenced by the people that I spend time with. And so that means that even the fact that I have a hard time understanding why a fellow Christian could come to the conclusions they're coming to means that we're steeped in different cultures, different narratives, different communities me just as much as that person. So I want to try to skip the judgment of saying that person's a bad Christian or that person's not a real Christian or that person is, you know, has drunk the Kool-Aid or something as if I don't ever have the same tendencies, right? So I want to first kind of have empathy to say we're both shaped in our interpretations by the groups we're in. This person's in different groups, so they have different interpretations. That makes a lot of sense. So if I can first kind of normalize the fact that that we're going to come to different conclusions if we belong to different groups, that helps me a little bit, right, in in being patient. Um, I think the next thing I would probably want to do is try to figure out where we have common ground. So sometimes when we disagree about what the Bible says, well, when I was a kid, it happened a lot that like the young people were reading the NIV and the older people were reading the King James Version. So sometimes we were having disagreement about the actual words in the Bible, right? But I think more often than not, we're not actually disagreeing about what the actual words are on the passage. We're probably disagreeing about some assumption we have about the context of those words, what's going on in the world in which those words were written down. Or we're disagreeing because of the different lenses that you and I are wearing when we read. 
And so I think if we can settle first on, you know, do you and I both believe that the words we're reading are God's words and that they are relevant and that they mean something for our life? Yes. Can we both agree that this is what the passage actually says? You should love your neighbor as yourself. Great. So like, what can we agree on? And then from there, try to figure out where's the disconnection. Do we agree that when those words were said, for example, they were said in a context of Roman occupation or of, you know, a lot of people are poor and need mutual support. That kind of, like, should we go there first? Probably because that's a little less threatening than going directly at kind of our own lenses and frames. And so if you're not real familiar with the historical and cultural background, that may feel like something you can't do, but at the very least you can start by agreeing on, yeah, I've, that passage means a lot to me too. Love your neighbor as yourself. I tend to think of it this kind of way or meaning the following things. And maybe that's because I've had these experiences or because these are the ways I've seen people apply that passage in ways that were meaningful to me or something. So you could even just start with that general agreement. And instead of saying you're reading that from a cultural lens, you maybe even just be able to unpack your own and say, I'm probably reading this from my own experience, but here's some really positive experiences I've had that make me appreciate this passage or something like that. Maybe that will invite them to do something similar, prompt some self-reflection. But I think you, yeah, you want to, avoid judgment and leave some room for curiosity or you're never going to get anywhere. So for many of us, we've engaged portions of the Bible. We've heard sermons. We've watched YouTube clips. Uh, maybe some of us have mugs, coffee mugs with <laughs> Bible verses on them. We've, we've wandered the halls of Hobby Lobby and seen them carved into little wooden tchotchkes and whatnot. But when we actually go to the Bible, help us, understand what are some good tools and practices for reading the scripture, applying the scripture, and at the same time, recognizing my own cultural lenses? Mm, yeah. Wow. It's a big question. Do we have all day? Cause we could take all day. Um, yeah. So I think I have increasingly thought about a framework for reading that pays attention to three dimensions that are always operating, whether we're aware of it or not. So it's best to just be aware of it. And one is to pay close attention to what's actually in the passage that we're reading. So sometimes we settle when we read for kind of approximations of a passage. We'll say, oh, money is the root of all evil. We think, well, the passage actually says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And maybe that's the same thing, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's deal with the actual words, right? Um, I think that happens a lot in sort of debates about issues is people will pull in a text or a quote or a something. And it's almost what the Bible says, but it's not exactly what the Bible says. So you want to go and like pay careful attention. What does it actually say? And when you go and pay careful attention to the passage, this is something, it takes a little bit of experience, just practice, but it doesn't take formal training to just be careful when you read and to say, oh, I noticed that this word is repeated over and over. I wonder if that's important. Or I noticed that this character seems to be like, painted in a negative light or painted in a positive light, or basically the kinds of things you would do if you were reading a novel or a, something that you really enjoy, you're paying attention to the little details because that's exciting, right? So you're paying close attention to the details. You're kind of trying to take at face value, what does it say? Then you want to, a kind of a second dynamic is paying attention to what's behind that 
passage. And sometimes, like in the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, this conversation on being a temple of the Holy Spirit, well, behind that is a larger conversation about sexual immorality, but there's also maybe other books of the Bible that Paul is assuming that we know when we're reading that, or there may be bigger cultural things. And so I think being able to uh, think about the broader context of the passage within the same book, or even wondering, is this passage commentary on some other passage? Is it assuming that I know something else? I think a good example of this is that we, my family just watched the newest Across the Spider-Verse movie. We loved the first one. And like it's one of the few movies that all four of us are equally excited about. One thing the kids kept doing as we were watching at home is pausing on certain shots and saying, Oh, I remember this from the first movie. And in the first movie, it has this. And like, once you see the connection, suddenly paying close attention to details in the movie, make you think of this details in this other movie. And now it makes it richer. So you're seeing it kind of from, you know, two things at the same time. Then they wanted to go back and watch the first movie again and see, can we anticipate anything that's going to happen in the second movie, which I actually do all the time. I'll be reading something in the Bible and think, that sounds like Deuteronomy. And I'll go find the passage and think, oh, there it is. And then I think, well, now I want to read Deuteronomy. So I go back to the, you know, so it's kind of those passages are in dialogue and being able to pay attention to that is helpful. And then I think the third dimension is us. So we're reading from a place and I have personal experiences. I have social connections. And instead of assuming that those are always a liability, that they're always going to cause me to misunderstand something, I just need to be aware of them. And practically, it means that it's very helpful for me when I read the Bible with people who have different experiences or come from different communities, because if they have very different intuitive kind of reactions to the same passage, that helps me say, oh, well, I read that and I connected with a different character. I associated with this other person, or I thought those were good behaviors, not bad behaviors. What makes you say that? And then it gives you some room to kind of explore well, am I bringing assumptions to this or are they bringing assumptions to this or both of us doing it? Now let's go back and look at the details in the passage again, or let's look at these passages we think may be back behind, you know, the story a little bit. I think we did something similar with that, you know, recent, uh, the Spider-Man movie, when the first one came out, my family was living in New York. And so it's so much fun to see like New York City in animation. And we're living in a Dominican neighborhood. And so a lot of our neighbors like, looked like Miles Morales. And so it was a lot of fun. And so when we were watching the new one again, it was like, oh, we could feel the movie like pulling at our heartstrings a little bit because it was resonating with us. And the Bible's supposed to do that too, but we just can't always trust that that resonating is exactly what the author hoped we would connect with. It could be something else. And just reading it with someone else beside us or in a group of people who are diverse, uh, a group that's diverse can help you surface some of those things and ask good questions and always send you back to the Bible itself with those questions to see if there's something we missed that we can kind of reconsider together. So thinking about talking with American Christian nationalists who are quoting scripture, usually to buoy an argument or to justify a particular political commitment or a posture towards a cultural issue. How would you coach us to engage with them, to read the Bible together? Yeah. I think the first thing that I would want to do is try to distinguish, and this is something I know you do really well, but like distinguish between the people who are being 
disingenuous and who are trying to leverage the Bible in an insincere way and, and doing it to exploit people's fears, et cetera, on the one hand. And then the people on the other hand who are hearing the things those people say and think that makes sense to me, or that speaks to a fear that I have or something. I think too often we lump those people into the same categories. And I think of the way Jesus spoke to different audiences in the gospels when he's speaking to people who were discouraged and weighed down and whatever, but he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he speaks to the religious leaders who are loading that burden onto those people, he calls them a brood of vipers or whatever. So there's, there's a distinction in the audience and I would say I'd probably go hard after the person who I thought was insincerely leveraging the Bible to exploit people. For the other people, I think I would maybe try to start with the level of um, a kind of the heartstrings. So I think of this again as like, there are certain passages of scripture that I read and I think, man, I get that. I, I was thinking the other day about Jonah. This is kind of silly, but I was thinking about Jonah because I'm here in Phoenix with you and we had a couple of cool days and then we had a really hot day and I thought Jonah's like the, the, the leaf, the little plant that grows up and covers him and then dies. I felt like that's what the weather had done. It's like the weather got nice and then it got hot again. I was like, ah, oh, just kill me. Like I just, it'd be better for me to be dead than to have to deal with this. And I thought when I read Jonah say that in the Bible, I think that's the most relatable thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and it's so nice that that kind of thing is in the Bible. So I think, you know, when we read, we're supposed to have a kind of gut level connection. And so I would want to ask someone who is saying things and leveraging or quoting scripture to support things that you feel like are way off base and doesn't sound to you like Christianity. Instead of saying, that doesn't sound to me like Christianity, I might say, man, I wonder why that resonates with you. Like what, what's behind, like, I'm curious when you hear him saying that, and you seem to be comforted by that, or you seem to be kind of agitated by that. What do you know? Can you give me a, like, tell me a story about a time when that, you know, you felt that way or something like, I wonder if, if you can kind of get below, if you say, tell me what's behind that feeling. Maybe they can't answer that question. And maybe it feels too much like you're being their counselor, but the point is try to get that information, right. To ask a question, ask them to tell a story, or if you can tell they seem agitated, you could say, man, it seems like that comment angered you. I'm curious. It kind of angered me too, but I wonder if we're angry for the same reason. Like you could even just kind of find a way to expose some of what's sitting between them and the text. And then I think if you have the trust, if a person is willing to engage with you in that way, I think you could begin to sort of address things where you feel like the Bible is being used in an unhelpful way. So I think one example is maybe not just Christian nationalists, but American Christians in general for a, for a long time now tend to conflate America with Israel. They read the Old Testament and they see all the promises that are made to Israel. And instead of saying that those promises are made to the church, they say those promises are made to America or something. There's a kind of pretty quick conflation of those things. And I think Christian nationalism has revived it and has, has, um, has put a finer point on it, but that's been around for a long time, the shining city on the hill and the whole, you know, it's been around for a long time. I just, as a hermeneutic principle, disagree that when God is speaking to Israel, he's actually speaking to America, but 
there may be a way to engage that to say, you know, it's interesting when you hear that passage about that promise made to Israel, I tend to think of it this way, that he's not actually making that promise to America, but maybe he's making it to the church and that that's a little bit different. So instead of, you know, degrading them for that connection, say, I have a different connection, or I I have a different association with that word. What do you think of this? I tend to find that most conservative Christians imagine America and or themselves as Israel and like everyone else is Babylon. So the culture in general is Babylon. Democrats maybe are Babylon, but there's some version of America that's Israel. And so even kind of teasing that out a little bit and saying, why do we assume that America is Israel and not Babylon? Like what's what's behind that? Because I look at these this evidence and think actually maybe we're more similar to Babylon than to Israel. But what do you think? So like even just kind of you know, opening those conversations and pushing it back. An important strategy of mine, which may be out of the bag now, if you know, it's on a podcast is I play dumb as often as I can to just say, explain that to me, or I'm not sure I get it. Can you, can you do that again? Or even if I think I know what they're saying, I think letting people speak for themselves is a gift and giving them your attention is a gift. But it also, if we're talking about these things is really important to make sure that we're doing it in in a hospitable sort of environment. That's so good. So approaching people with curiosity, hospitality, seeking to understand what's going on in their heart when they use catchphrases or uh, slogans asking, tell me more about that. What's going on? Yeah. How do you feel when you hear that? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's so good, man. Well, Brandon, where can people find you and your work? So my, you can find books that I've written on Amazon and somehow I snagged all of the online URLs and things. I am Brandon J. O'Brien everywhere, somehow. So you can find me online, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and website, brandonjobrien.com, and uh, find out more there. Great. And what's your MySpace? (laughs) That's a secret. (laughs) Brandon, thanks so much for being on. Uh, Really appreciate you and your work, man. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.